Uh, yeah, super exciting times, but it's always exciting actually to, to get to continue to study in the Gospel of John. And we're going to be in John 6, and I promise we won't go as long today. We'll be in John 6, uh, verse 15 through 21. So we're just going to take a very short section of Scripture tonight. And uh, this is one that as I've been studying and looking and praying about it all week long, I found myself just enamored and hit by the very practical reality of how this is universal to all of us. No matter where you find yourself in life, every single one of us battles or has issues or faces on a daily, I would say even hourly basis, fear. Fear is part of the human condition. In fact, I remember a couple years ago, Crystal and I were flying back to Denver. I was in seminary at the time, and we were flying back from Las Vegas where her family lives. And as we were flying back, I had probably the worst plane ride experience of my entire life. Uh, I was sitting next to the window, and outside the window, I could literally see lightning bolts going past the window every 15, 20 seconds, and hearing loud, raucous thunder practically shake the plane. I was terrified. I was ready to say my prayers and meet Jesus face to face. Uh, What made it all the more difficult and even a surreal experience is in the back row with some college students who had also gone to Las Vegas, and they were returning, but let's just say they had had a few too many drinks. So this experience to them was nothing but fun. They were hooting and hollering and living it up, and I was there petrified, ready to meet my maker. And I found myself just completely freaked out. We tried to land the plane twice, and both times the pilot at the very last second pulled the plane up, and we had to head back into the sky because it was just too dangerous. I really thought that this was the end. And when I'd finally got off the plane, I vowed at that moment to not ride a plane again. Well, until next time. But I was, I was scared. Uh, fear was real. Fear was present in my life at that moment. Or I remember when I was in high school, and, and I did, to give a speech. I remember we had to give a five-minute speech, and beforehand, I was sitting in the back row with a friend of mine, and I said, my, my mouth is, is very dry, and, and, and my palms are really sweaty as I think about giving this speech, and, and he just looks at me, and he deadpans and says, he's like, why don't you lick your palms? And, and I was like, well, it is a pretty practical solution. But all of us, all of us encounter fear. Fear is a constant reality. In fact, what are you afraid of? What comes to mind? Where is fear a present reality for you? Are you afraid of being alone? Maybe you're afraid that you'll always be alone. Are you afraid what's going to happen with your grades at the end of the semester? Are you afraid about where you're going to be working in six months? Are you afraid about a relationship that seems to be on the edge? Are you afraid about things that you've done in your past? Are you afraid about a certain experience or reality or conversation that you might have to face? Are you afraid about the future and what it entails? Are you afraid even as you look at the challenges and responsibilities in front of you? I would argue, in fact, fear is so paralyzing for many of us that we find a way to delay responsibility and what lies in front of us. Sometimes this is what I think leads to so much delayed adolescence, is you look at all that is in front of you, all the responsibilities, all the choices, all of the things that growing up will entail, and it can be fearful. Or you're having kids, or you have kids, and you're looking at all of the things in their future, all the decisions you're going to have to make, all the calculations, all the conversations, all the heartbreak, all of the growing up that's about to embark and go in front of you, and you find yourself overwhelmed 
and afraid. In fact, there's this new phenomenon that sociologists talk about, about helicopter parents, where, and you see it too, if you go to playgrounds around Seattle a lot of times, you'll just see a whole perimeter of parents standing there as their kids play. And almost monitoring, okay, is little Johnny climbing the monkey bars just right? Okay, what did that kid do? Was he pushing? Is he shoving? Wait, they were in line to go down the slide first. Should I go over there and talk to their parents? And, and every kid, you want to give a background check to, and you want to dip your kid in Perel, and you want to make sure that nothing bad ever happens to your child because <gasps> what if? They're afraid. And these things are real. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that these aren't real realities. But what if? What if? What if, just imagine with me for a minute, what if Jesus designed a life where we could be free from fear? Where we could live in a much more bold and confident and free manner in which fear didn't have the last word and fear wasn't what controlled us, but rather there was a reason we didn't have to be afraid, but we could walk forward in confidence even when we didn't know what was going to happen next. We're all gripped by fear and it can ruin us, but I would argue is there's a way to be free from it. So let's look at our passage. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 16. This is in John. This is what it says. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into into the sea and got onto a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So here's the situation. Jesus is at his apex. He's a rock star. He just got done feeding 15,000 people with basically a Hebrew Lunchable. And there was, a lunch, there was leftovers for everyone. And the crowd now wanted him to rise in prominence and to become their king. They were tired of the Romans oppressing them. They didn't like their government. Can, can some of us relate? Maybe we can, maybe we can't. People are very passionate about government. They've always been that way. But people didn't like their government. And they wanted to see Jesus become the one who freed them from the shackles and the oppression of the Roman Empire. They said, this is our guy. Surely if he can make food for us, then of course he can free us from this dreaded, persecuting Roman Empire. But Jesus would have none of it. So what does he do? He sends his disciples on the way. He sends them out into the lake of Gal- into Galilee, into the Sea of Galilee. And Galilee, um, for, for just comparison's sake, it's probably about two times the size of Lake Washington. It's about five to six miles wide. So there's a good rowing stretch if you're going to get across it. Could also have really nasty weather because you'd have these giant mountains all around it. And as those winds would come down off of it, they could kick up quite a storm. So Jesus sends them across and he basically says, I'll meet you at the other side. Which I think is really interesting. I think they were probably like, well, wait a minute, we have the boat, so how are you going to get there? And then like, well, never mind, Jesus is always doing weird stuff, so we'll just accept that he's going to show up and meet us at the other side. Jesus goes and he gets some quiet time with God because he's, he's, he's centering himself, saying, once again, what has God called me to do? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be about? And so he sends his disciples out, and it's dark. Um, they have been rowing for quite a while. And what you have to understand about the sea is the sea is not this place of luxury where there's giant cruise liners. But in that day and age, the sea is symbolic and a place of dread and chaos. Most people feared the sea. It was seen as one of the most deadly places that people could actually go to. Uh, So there was some fear and trepidation with being told to cross over to the sea. So this is where it goes, verse 18. Look at the rest of it with me. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So here's the situation. 
a lot of these guys are experienced fishermen. They are familiar with being out on the sea. They probably are perfectly capable of navigating across Galilee. Most of them have spent most of their life out on this lake fishing. And they have been told to row across it. They probably set out at about 10 p.m. They've been rowing for about five to six hours. This trip should not take this long, but what ends up happening? They end up facing this massive headwind. And what they're basically doing is having a row machine type experience, probably the first one ever. They're just rowing and rowing and rowing till you get the calluses and the blisters on your hand. And they're not making any progress. All they've been able to do is work their way out to the very center of the lake. And it's probably now around three to four a.m. So it's pitch black. So you're out on the sea facing a stiff wind, you're dead tired, you've been rowing for hours, you've got blisters and calluses on your hand, and all of a sudden you see Jesus cruising on up. Being frightened is a very natural response. This is completely out of the norm. In fact, in Mark, we're told that they think Jesus is a ghost. They're completely frightened. And that makes total sense because it's not every day that you see someone walk on water. In fact, this is one of those arguments that I I constantly will come back to with some of my non-Christian friends who will think that everyone in the ancient world believed constantly in the supernatural or had weird, undeveloped beliefs about the way the world worked. They were just as surprised as you and I would be if we were boating out in Lake Washington and someone approached us at three in the morning in the dead of night. It took them by surprise as well. So, what ends up happening here? Let's look at the last section. Jesus comes up. Obviously, they're frightened. They think they've seen a ghost. And in verse 20, this is what Jesus does. He says to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. So Jesus shows up and he says something that really, if we're honest, is much easier to hear than to actually do. He says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. I know the situation you're in. I know what you've been going through. I know the headwind that you've been facing. I know the challenging predicament of your circumstances. But don't be afraid. Even though, I mean, who in here, who in here would even dare to say that they didn't have something to be legitimately afraid of? It's not like Jesus is saying you have nothing to be afraid of. Of course you do. You're in a very dangerous situation. Jesus is saying something even much more bold than that. He's saying, although there's something to be afraid of, you don't have to be afraid. How can that be? How can that be? Jesus is setting up a tension that I think he's going to solve for us in just a second here. But what's also going on is in his statement there where he says, it is I. This is better translated even in the Greek of, I am. I am. Do not be afraid. He's hearkening back because these are good Jewish men, good Jewish followers. He's hearkening back to Yahweh. He's reminding them, I'm not an ordinary man. I'm a superman. I'm the God man. I'm the man who walks on water, but I'm also the God who parts the sea and controls the elements. Their ears would have been hearing the Red Sea narrative. They would have been perfectly aware that they are being delivered from the one, by the one who controls the winds and the waves and the sea and all of the elements of this world. Jesus is making it definitively clear once again, I am God. I am God, even in a situation such as this. This is amazing. 
But what I want us to look at, what I want us to really see here, and I want to get really practical with the remaining minutes that we have, is his statement there where he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because here's the truth. If you're afraid and I just walk up to you and say, do not be afraid, does that really help? Does that, does that honestly do anything? Does that change anything? Does that immediately make you feel better? Well, probably not. Because here's the thing about fear. Fear is one of those things that it's not always submitted to logic. Fear is often even illogical. It's much more emotionally driven. It's a response we can have and sometimes even a very good one. It's a sense of danger where we want to protect ourselves. It's a sense of there might be something out there to genuinely be afraid of. But Jesus comes and he says, fear not. How can he say such a thing? Well, I want us to look at a few things that fear does. Here's a few consequences and effects that fear has in our lives, things that it steals from us. Fear, first and foremost, rarely submits to logic. It's not like if someone is suffering from a phobia or a fear, you can immediately just talk it out by them by showing them a logical diagram or giving them a sound proof or a good argument. Fears are often completely illogical because they're not so much about reasoning and rationale, but they're about, am I safe? Can I trust my reality? Can I trust my circumstances? Can I trust my future? And to whom and to where will I place my hope and trust? See, these are questions about identity. These are questions about relationship. These are not questions about reason and logic. What is fear? Fear is us wanting to be protected from danger. It's us wanting to know that we're loved. It's us wanting to know that we're safe. It's us wanting to know that there's somewhere we belong. And when those things feel like they're in danger or being threatened or no longer something that is safe, we become afraid. And fear, fear is often from an external source. And fear has a a, a very a very close cousin called worry. And worry is often from an internal source. It comes from internally. We feel worry every day. Worry about how we're going to pay our bills. Worry about what we're going to do with our job. Worry about how we're going to handle a conflict with a friend. Worried. Just that general, low-grade, sometimes sense of worry and stress that a lot of us feel. And those two things often go together. Here's the thing about fear and worry, though, as you guys walk throughout your lives. Fear and worry, what they're constantly trying to do is smuggle the troubles of tomorrow into today. They're trying to take the troubles of tomorrow and bring them into today. This is why Jesus says profound things such as, do not worry. And can you, can you, add, a, can you add a day to your life by worrying? And, and tomorrow has its own troubles, so live in the present. But there is a human propensity and tendency and struggle in which we want to smuggle the troubles of tomorrow into today. And this is what worry does. As we lay our heads down on our pillow at night and we think about all that we'll face tomorrow or all the consequences or challenges that we have in front of us, we worry. We worry about failure. We worry about risk. We worry about the challenges Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time to really truly be afraid. There's a difference between uh, living in a sense of of faith and freedom, and there's a sense of sometimes just being foolish. Um, How many of you guys have seen that documentary, Grizzly Man? Some of you guys? Okay. Yeah, Drew's probably seen it. This is is a documentary about a guy, he he devotes his life, well, it his short life, Uh, he devoted his life to going to live with grizzly bears out in Alaska, and he would 
try to develop very personal, close relationships with him. And as I would watch this documentary the whole time, I'd be screaming at the television, this is nuts, run from the bear. That's a legitimate fear. You should not encounter the bear. You should not go up and name him and call him Fluffy and pat him on the head and think that you're part of his family. They're not embracing you. They don't love you. But it was this, this sense of which he personified them and thought that they really did care about them, and it ended up leading to his death. And there was something for him honestly to be afraid of. So I'm not saying that fear doesn't have a place, but what I am saying is that fear paralyzes a lot of us. Fear and its challenges lead a lot of us to create future realities that are often not nearly as hard or challenging or unbearable as we think they're going to be. They mushroom and balloon in size and scope inside of our minds, and we lose reality of what they'll honestly be like. So here, let me just give you a few more of the, the, the realities. Fear causes us to lose freedom and our future. We get so entrapped by worrying about tomorrow, we forget how to live today. We get so afraid of failure that we won't take any more risks. We won't take any more challenges even when it seems like God's calling us to step out, even when it would seem like this would be what God would have for me. We're afraid of failure, so we don't apply for that promotion. We're afraid of failure, so we don't ask that person out. We're afraid of failure, so we don't take that new job or that new role or that new whatever in a different space and develop new friendships and relationships. And so failure imprisons us, and we forget what Paul tells us in Ephesians, where he says, God's prepared good works in advance for you to do. And these good works, they've already been planned by God. And in faith, you live and obediently walk into them. You live and obediently walk into them. Not always with perfect assurance. Every single one of us, we we make the mistake of thinking we have to have a crystal ball and be able to perfectly map out and understand the future before we act. And that's just not the way life works. And when we don't, we find ourselves living in fear. And fear robs us of our future and also robs us of freedom. Second one, and this is huge, fear steals our joy. Steals our joy. Foundational value at Redemption Church. We want to enjoy Jesus. And we also want to build relationships with one another. And we want to love people. But here's the truth. Have you ever met a super joy-filled, happy person who also is constantly fearful and worrying? No, they're incompatible. The two do not go together. A joyful person who is excited and jubilant and passionate about the future does not live a life that's constantly marked by worry and fear. You either get to live in a place of faith or you live in a place of fear. Either way, you're serving and trusting in someone to orchestrate and plan out your future. Now, fear doesn't work, and you and I know this. In fact, that's why when you walked in here today, we didn't, we're not going to say things like, fear, you number all of our days. Fear, you know our future. Fear, it is only by you that we, we, we see our future and we walk in your grace. Because we know that fear doesn't have a future for us. But faith does, especially when that faith is placed in Jesus Christ. Here's the other thing about fear, is fear we can pass on to our friends and parents. You can pass it on to your children. Fear can be highly contagious, and it can even be generational. It can be a very bad inheritance that some of us have picked up from our parents. We begin to see the world in a completely different way, and instead of take challenges and embrace a life of faith and understand that we have a God who loves us and cares deeply about us, we have received messages of 
Don't ever take a risk. Don't ever take a challenge. Only trust Jesus so far, as long as that doesn't involve leaving the United States. Uh, whatever it might be, we, 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 we draw these boundaries, and sometimes we pick them up even from those that are closest to us. So parents, I would encourage you to not be reckless, but to not pass on fear to your kids, to constantly push them toward faith, to remind them that they have a God who loves them deeply. Here's the biggest way that fear steals our joy. Every single one of us has this disease that pops up in different ways throughout our lives. I call it the what ifs. The what ifs. So this is any time something's in front of us and we begin to go down the hypothetical road of saying, well, what if? What if? What if I send my kids to the park and what if? Dot, dot, dot. What if my kid goes to camp and dot, dot, dot. What if I apply for that job and dot, dot, dot. And our minds begin to race and run away. And the hypotheticals begin to control us and they begin to dominate the decision we make because we're now being ruled by fear rather than faith. And the what ifs really become our reality. See, here's the thing about fear. Fear is a false prophet. It lies to you over and over and over again. Fear constantly tells you things are going to happen that hardly ever come true. But you know what? We never go back to fear and hold it responsible for the lies it's told us. We never hold it accountable for its shoddy track record. In fact, we trust in it over and over and over again. Fear has let you down. Fear has misled you. Fear has told you lies over and over and over again. It's a false prophet. It does not tell you the truth. It doesn't have claim to the future. All it's doing, once again, is constantly taking the worries of tomorrow, the troubles of tomorrow, and trying to smuggle them into today so that you're robbed of your joy and you're robbed of any sense of taking a risk or having a challenge. Fear is a false prophet. And last, fear leads to a deep loss of relational intimacy. A deep loss of relational intimacy. There's men and women in here, you guys take incredible risks sometimes, even in your businesses or even in your education or even in other endeavors. But you probably won't take a risk when it comes to being known, to being honest about who you truly are, to exposing yourself to community and to getting real. Because it seems that the predicament of fig leaves pops right up again. What if they really found out this about me? What if they knew the real truth? What if they saw the, the junk that I've been trying to hide and to masquerade and to cover up from other people knowing? What if? And so this relational intimacy that we all crave, wanting to be known, wanting to be loved, wanting to be connected to others, fear pushes away from us. And I would argue, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but we are in a culture that is, is, struggles mightily with anger. We, we love outrage. We love to be offended. We have people that struggle with their temper, that struggle with anger, that struggle with being heard. And beneath almost all anger is a sense of fear. It's a sense I'm losing control or what I love and value most seems like it's being threatened. And what if it gets away from me? It's a sense of fear. It's a sense of loss. What if I'm not in control? What if I don't get my way? And here's what happens. If we live in that place of fear, we eventually find ourselves marked by defensiveness, by cynicism, and by hiding instead of being known 
instead of engaging in relationships, instead of being honest, instead of repenting, instead of being vulnerable. So here's, here's what's most important. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus shows up and he, he says to us, yeah, there are things to be afraid of. What you're going through, the fears that you're wrestling with, I don't want to minimize them in any way. I don't want to pretend like that's not real, but Jesus shows up and his disciples, it's not like they perfectly understood this lesson. And then after this, they're like, oh, well, Jesus said, fear not, we'll never fear again. These are the same guys that only just a short time later would betray him in the garden as he's about to be crucified, who would turn and run coward when a little girl would question them, who would not stick by his side, who would not show up to his funeral, and were terrified. And then all of a sudden, after Jesus' crucifixion, after his death, and after his resurrection, they all of a sudden actually appear incredibly fearless. What happened? What changed? See, it went from being a lesson to an experiential reality that if Jesus Christ could rise from the dead, if the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to take away our sin, can defeat death, the thing that you and I are ultimately most afraid of, afraid of losing our life, afraid of being forgotten, afraid of no one loving us, afraid of being left alone, afraid of being left out, of all of that finally being conquered and defeated and destroyed, there's nothing to fear. We're free. We're completely free because you cannot harm someone that has defeated death. And Jesus Christ's followers, his people, you have defeated death. You experience the rewards of that because you're in Christ. Because you're Christ's people. and Because you're loved by him. And so you have union with him. You have relationship with him. You're known by him. And he's destroyed death. Death is done. Death is over. And so all of Jesus' disciples would go on to actually experience incredibly fearful and horrific deaths, most of them being martyrs, many of them being crucified. No longer cowards, but all of a sudden confident and bold and fearless. Why? Because death was no longer a valuable or a valiant enemy. Could no longer defeat them. They had new life in Jesus. And this new life said, we can trust the one who has defeated death. And when he says, do not be afraid, we can put our trust and our hope in him. Marcus Aurelius, a lot of you guys might know that new name from the movie Gladiator, but that was actually a real dude. And Marcus Aurelius, he um, was emperor of Rome around 160 AD. And Marcus Aurelius was uh, persecuting Christians all throughout the empire. And at that time, that's when the Colosseums were going on and Christians were being eaten by lions and also just incredibly other horrific deaths they were experiencing. In some ways, there was almost a genocide going on in about 160 AD of Christians. And so there's a, an ancient medical doctor named Claudius Galenus. And we still have many of his writings. And it was illegal at that time to do an, an autopsy or an examine a dead body. But what you could do is you could still examine a dying body. So what he would often do and other medical doctors at that time is they would go to the Colosseums and as Christians were dying, they would go and investigate and they would get close to them and they would spend time. And many of his writings have survived. He's wrote about Christians in a lot of his findings and even writings that we still have. And one of the phrases that he says is he says, what we have come to see about these Christians is they're fearless of death and the hereafter. There seems to be something that makes them fearless of death and the hereafter. 
because they have found that there is a deep abiding trust in the one who has defeated death and that there's nothing any longer to be afraid of. I remember, um, I remember being a kid and learning to swim and a lot of you guys probably had the same experience but being like five or six and my dad would stand six, seven feet away from the edge of the pool and he would beckon me to jump. And in that moment, fear and trust were at odds with one another. I was afraid of the consequences. Like, of course, I could go to the bottom of the water and drown, and, and, and that would be terrible. I'm only six, but even I understand that reality. Or I could trust that my dad will save me, that he'll be there, that he'll protect me, that he'll keep me safe. But here's the reality between your fear and seeing the goodness of God is there'll always be that moment where you don't get to be in control. There'll be a moment where you have to jump. There'll be a moment where you'll have to say, fear, you don't control my future. You have been a false prophet. You have no life for me. You've never been my savior. And in fact, Jesus over here, you have been faithful. You've kept your word. You've been consistent. You've been loving. And you've always been there for me. And you've defeated death. So when Jesus says, do not be afraid, he's saying, death is no longer your enemy because you're alive in Christ. And so what would it look like? What would it look like? I just, all of us, one minute. Think of, think of the thing you're afraid of. Just think of it. Whatever it is, whether it's something small or something big, just think of this. Just hear Jesus say to you. Just hear his words. It's me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Whatever it is tomorrow morning, whatever it is this week, whatever it is you have facing you on the horizon, it's me. Don't be afraid. So let's, let's be a people that walk in faith rather than fear because we have new life in Christ. We have a good God who loves us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your death. And we come, and even on Sunday, we remember to celebrate uh, your resurrection the day that changed everything. It's just not for Easter, but it's every day. It's a day we're deeply, constantly reminded that you rule over everything. You rule over all the fears that we're facing at this moment. You rule over all the, the anxieties and the worries that are constantly bombarding us. But you are the Lord of the storm. You're the one who governs all of our circumstances. You are the one who orchestrates our future. And we can put our hope and our trust in you and in you alone, because you have always been a good God. You've always been a loving God, so much so that you would come and die a death, take on our sin, so that we would have new life. And so Jesus, uh, allow us, allow us to continue to experience freedom from fear. Not because it's just a, 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 a psychological mantra that we speak to ourselves, but it's a deep, abiding reality that our heavenly Father who loves us says, do not be afraid. You have nothing to fear. I've got you. You're safe. And that won't ever change. And we can look to you. We can look to the resurrection and know that you love us. Amen.